Australians drowning in Morrison's excuses and bail-in fact-check fails to reassure depositors. Coming up on this week's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 11th of March. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party founder and leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Robbie. Good to be back. Good to have you back. Yeah. And uh, amid all sorts of strange circumstances, but which we're going to cover in this week's show. Um, first, we're going to be talking about the, the flood crisis, uh, Craig, and mm -hmm. just the absolute lack of duty of care by this government. But how that's been a long time coming mm. and how we need institutions that can give governments the powers to do what has to be done in these circumstances. And AAP, AAP the news agency, Australian Associated Press, has fact-checked our claims about bail-in. And unfortunately, they didn't do a very good job. So we're going to talk about that as well. Um, please like this show. Uh, remember to subscribe, and when you do subscribe, click the bell icon so you get notifications of uh, new shows when they're, when they're posted, and share widely so we can get this valuable information out. And uh, the AAP information especially is, you know, given that um, they've dealt with this issue this week, and we've been banging on about it for eight years. Yes, 2013. <laughs> right? yeah. you, you, you get, uh, that, that alone tells you that the Citizens Party is ahead of the game. Um, so our information is important to get out there widely. All right, Craig, let's get into it. Australians drowning in Morrison's excuses. And, uh, I mean, I think the whole country's getting to the point where they've had enough because oh, it's yeah. not... I mean, natural disasters happen. We know natural disasters happen. It's what, it's what do you do to plan for them and what do you do to respond to them. And ever since Scott Morrison said he doesn't hold a hose... People have noticed that every time something comes up... It's not his fault. It's not his fault, and he's full of excuses. not his government's fault. Right. You know... State government responsibility. Don't look here. Yep, yep. So in this case, look, this is a massive flood. The, the front, Craig, I, did, I, I got onto Google Earth and actually did the, uh, the distance measurement. If you take from Wollongong to Gympie, mm. that's 1,000 kilometres of coastline, mm -hmm. right? And essentially, that's what was flooded, but with real... Um, inundations at, at certain points and of course the big one um, for this flood was Lismore which it turns out is a place that's well used to being flooded but this one this was a record um, for Lismore and the question is that, that everyone's asking is why is it taken why did it take 10 days for the government to declare a state of emergency so they could actually cut through red tape and do something about it. It's not like the Liberal, the, the, the government was a Labor government in New South Wales and the Liberal government in the Feds. I mean, yeah. this is the same Liberal Party, you know, federally and state. So what's the hold-up here? Now, we trace it back to a very evil ideology. The whole what we call neoliberalism. Why we rant and rave about it is because it took this concept that we call the common good. Mm and trashed it and said, no, 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 you're on your own. Government is not responsible for any common good. I mean, Ma Margaret Thatcher, one of the, 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 uh, the champions of neoliberalism, famously stopped at the foot of a stairway for an impromptu doorstop uh, interview in her day. And she said, when she was asked about the impact of her policies on society, and she said, there's no such thing as society. 
right? We're all just individuals. And of course, let's just dispense with that. We all know it's garbage, right? Because especially when in a crisis, you know that you need the help of communities and institutions, etc. But this, this ideology has infected everybody. And um, we've never seen a worse example of that than Scott Morrison. Mm -hmm. Now, he is particularly bad. He deserves to be singled out. And the proof of that is I want to play the clip of Barnaby... Joyce, the Deputy Prime Minister, being interviewed by 7.30 report the other night, earlier this week. And watch Barnaby's demeanour. The, the, the answer is in his demeanour. And I would go so far as to say, Craig, that even Barnaby personally is incapable of being as bad as Scott Morrison in this, in this area, except Morrison's the boss, mm -hmm. right? And Barnaby is trying to justify the unjustifiable, explain the inexplicable, and it's not... We know what Barnaby Joyce is like as a personality. This is not Barnaby Joyce. This is the ghost of Barnaby Joyce because this is so unconscionable how, how pathetic this government is. Just watch. Barnaby Joyce is the Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, thank you for your time. Why wasn't a national emergency declared days ago? Uh, well, the process that we've been going through, the Expenditure Review Committee, uh, even having the Prime Minister there, I think this is all important. Uh, now, obviously, in the future, you can always look back and say, I would have done things differently. But we've got to make sure that uh, as we go through this disaster, that we, we look to the future. And the, it's been declared now. This allows us to get through the bureaucratic process a lot quicker. I, I do yeah, think sorry, at the start... Sorry, sorry um, can, I just, can I just interrupt? Sure. I mean, firstly, do you think people yeah. on the ground really care about whether the Prime Minister's there or not? And, and what you've said so far doesn't really answer why this couldn't have been declared a national emergency. It was obvious, surely, a couple of weeks ago that that's what it was. Well, I know the people on the ground would be incredibly upset. They'd be very angry. They'd be frightened. They'd be uh, very apprehensive about the future. Uh, and a national emergency, the, the, one of the biggest parts of it is to get through the bureaucratic process uh, in a more efficient way. Uh, the resources, of course, have been... Going, going into these areas, but to get through the bureaucratic process as the bureaucratic process becomes more pronounced in what we have to do as we go forward, then I think that it's, it's going to assist us a lot from here. I grant that if people say, well, it should have happened last week, well, uh, if we made that mistake, we made that mistake, and we're sorry for it. But, it, but, the, but it, to get through the, the role of government in a more efficient and expedient way, that process is now in place. But on this question of efficiency, the Royal Commission into the Black Saturday bushfires heard that as a result of what was learned from that disaster, Commonwealth emergency response in future would kick in before a disaster became more severe and that there would be a more coherent, preemptive and expeditious mobilisation of federal resources. And that's not what happened here. We thought, like the payments in Cat A and Cat B, Category A and Category B payments, $1,000 for adults, $400 for children, uh, that has been announced. The process of evacuation assistance by the ADF, uh, that, that was in place. Uh, making sure that we, we get issues such as transport corridors open up as quickly as possible, that is in place. Evacuation uh, processes and getting people into hospitals as required in other areas, these processes, it wasn't as if there was no process in place. And in any disaster, we acknowledge that if there are areas where you can do it better in the future, you do. Nothing is, nothing is, is perfect. There is, the whole purpose of government is to do the best job. And if you have 
uh, an area where you can be, improve in the future, then that's what you do. You learn from these things. That they're, it's an incredibly um, dynamic and desperate situation, and and the, how you deal with it is as as best you can in the circumstances. So, I mean, that's to me, Craig. That's incredibly striking. I'm, yeah. And I'm not a fan of Barnaby, right? But you know, he he is um, uh, he is eating shit. Yeah. Right. Um, because well, this is so bad. Yeah. You know, look, this is the guy that called for the Bradfield scheme. Where's that gone? Yeah. <laughs> why? What's happened here? Did he become deputy prime minister and disappeared? He's in more power now than he's ever been, and he's not actually calling for the projects he called for in opposition. Well, or not he, opposition, but when he was a you know backbencher and so forth. Yeah. And. No, because that's right. He, he has instincts that, that are seemingly impossible to deliver on when in government because they're, they're captured by this neoliberal ideology and vested interests. I, think, yeah, I really do want to underscore this, this discussion on neoliberalism, Robbie, because I don't think really people understand what this really means. I mean, if you go back to look at Curtin and Chifley and Old Labor, they had the interest of the Australian people front yeah. and centre during the war. This was a concept of the, what the old Labor Party used to refer to as the common good or the general welfare. As a principle, where you say, in government, our responsibility is to look after the people, the population as a whole. And they did a magnificent job saving Australia from invasion yeah. through the collaboration on this principle. And we, we actually transformed our economy. What happened? They said, no, private banks, we're going to use the power of the Commonwealth Bank to bank to put you in your corner. We're going to have regulations to control your greed. Yep. Everything that we've seen in the private banking system was, under, was, was, was regulated and controlled for the public good. Back then, we, and we'll talk more about this, we had insurance companies that actually operated on the basis of the common good more than they did yep. today. They were still private, quite a lot of them. But there's also you know, state, state ones, example yep. of state ones, which we'll talk about. But this principle, this is transformative if you follow it. And we're not talking about... We're it's not transformative because you can solve problems if you want to. Well, look, there's <laughs> so much. And unfortunately, you know, history, the history on the subject is not taught. You go back and look at what was done with the Reconstruction Finance Corporation under President Roosevelt in the United States. I mean, what was the reality there? The, night, the day before uh, his inauguration, 49 out of the 50 states had all their banks closed. People were terrified. So the subject matter of his discussion was there's nothing to fear but fear itself. And then he embarked upon policies to support the general welfare. You know, we saw the introduction of Glass-Steagall, which you know, stopped the speculation that had caused the problem in the first place. But then he, then he basically put millions upon millions of people into work. He, he organised the homeowners and loan corporation to stop people from being foreclosed upon. The point is that when you put the concept of the general welfare first as a political principle, yep. you can come up with the solutions. Yep. Unfortunately, what you see with Morrison and why he's so bad, he doesn't have that principle. He has the principles of the big four banks first. Yep. Let's look after the banking system first. To hell with the people, banking system first. And you can look at, look at his attitude, go back and look at his attitude to Christine Holgate, where, where she was fighting for a, for a postal bank. She saved the postal licensed license post office Officers at that under her leadership, but she must go because the ideology of this government was sell off Australia Post. Who the hell cares about like licensed post yeah. officers, uh, operatives, yeah. and families anyway? This bastardry, this attitude, is what you see 
time and time again with the bushfires and now with the floods. And Craig, you were right to trace it um, back to Roosevelt because you could, actually, you could actually draw a line where what Roosevelt started doing in the Depression, um, Labor Party here in World War II was able to, to, to implement the same type of intention. So by the end of World War II, this had become a new standard, actually, for how government should operate around the world. The British Labor Party took office. Mm. They nationalised the Bank of England. They put in place these public institutions like the National Health Service, etc. And they're all on the same page. And it's known as the post-war settlement. And what happened was the neoliberals saw that and they said, ah, we, the private elite, right, the private financial elite, we're losing our power to government institutions, we have to destroy and undermine government. And that became the revolution in the late 70s and 80s. It came in with Thatcher, Reagan, Hawke and Keating here, Roger Douglas in New Zealand. It, it and was, now we've had 40 years of that. It was brought in by the, well, we've done a lot of work on yep. this. We actually published a whole newspaper called The New Citizen, you know, Secret Institution Taking Over Australia, the Mont Pelerin Society. We did the research and showed the specific institutions like the Tasman Institute, Centre for Independent Studies, uh, the so uh, their, their philosophy society and, and the whole bunch of these think tanks were set up here specifically on the philosophy that government is bad. You've got to have small government. Get yep. government out of running the economy. You know, and basically this neoliberal uh, ideology took over. It was an operation. Yep. Right? Now that operation can be reversed and that's what the Citizens Party represents. And what happens is that people buy into people are susceptible to the arguments until they need the institution that only government can provide and then what you discover because it's been 40 years is government has been downsized and outsourced so badly that its capabilities are shot and the people running those governments they're in they as their outlook is incapable of rising to the challenge right mm. and that's what we're dealing with with scott morrison absolutely and so let's look at some of the details of this of this flood thing and we want to contrast it to what we propose based on everything we've just said our understanding of that history etc how you would actually tackle a crisis like this, because it is, it is a, um, uh, a national emergency. Um, so one of the things you've seen this week is the, is, um, the government, the, the, the federal and state governments quibbling over this $4.8 billion emergency fund, right? And the f their idea is this is a fund for emergencies that's supposed to sit there and will spend some of the interest from that fund. Well, an emergency as big as this comes along, it doesn't cut it. On the 3rd of March, Craig, um, because Morrison was in, had COVID and was, had to isolate for seven days, now that doesn't mean he couldn't have done a lot more, but that's why he wasn't out and about, so we're not going to judge him for that. Um, but that's why Barnaby was doing most of the speaking. Mm. And on the 3rd of March, which was by then three days after the flood in Lismore, right, he announced that... He was talking about the scale of the crisis. He said, look, this is such a big flooded area. There's 35 local government areas um, impacted by this, right, between northern New South Wales and Queensland, 35. And then he said, and we've provided $35 million to address it. million dollars per <laughs> It's a million dollars each local government area, right, for something that clearly needed more than that. Now, the, granted, they have rolled out a lot more money since then, but you will find, based on, I'm predicting you will find, based on the experience of the bushfires two years earlier, that the money they're talking about now, unless you follow every dollar, right, it's one thing to announce it, but there's a difference between an announceable and a deliverable, 
right? Follow it through. And even then we're saying what they've announced, I think it's roughly in the ballpark of two or $3 billion, is way under in terms of the reconstruction that's going to be required. Um, and so we, and, and then uh, the, day, uh, the day that we reported this, the Canberra Times had this very revealing article how um, the government is so addicted to outsourcing its decision-making to the big four global accounting firms, which dominate consulting now, for governments all around the world, they're getting from this government $2 million a day um, payment. And of course, that helps because they, they actually donate to the government. But that was a stark contrast then to the million dollars each LGA that the government had announced, yeah, right? Mm. Um, I mean, shame, absolutely shameless. And so we, we posed the question in our press release we put out this week, what has happened to Australia? And a fascinating contrast comes from comparing what you've seen so far in the Lismore flood and general flood response to Cyclone Tracy in 1974 and how the government then responded to that, right? And just um, broad brushstrokes is, is all we're going to cover, but they tell the story. Cyclone Tracy hit very early in the morning on Christmas Day, 1974. Um, 80% of houses in Darwin were destroyed, 80%. 70% of all buildings were destroyed. By that evening, the relevant minister, Rex Patterson, and Major General Alan Stretton, someone I actually got to meet um, uh, not long before he died, um, Major General Alan Stretton, who was in charge of the government's response, had, were, had arrived in Darwin to take charge. They decided that because so many houses were gone, the city had to be evacuated, and that, or most of them, and they were going to leave 10,000 men behind to help with the reconstruction. So they had 35,000 people to evacuate. That evacuation was completed by the 31st of December, right? Within six days, it was done. Um, how did they do it? The government immediately recalled all, act, all uh, ADF personnel, Army, Navy, Air Force, who were on holiday leave. And because it was Christmas, a lot of them were on holiday leave. They were all called back. Every Air Force transport plane was deployed up there, every single one and 13 Royal Australian Navy ships were deployed to it. And that still to this day is the biggest peacetime operation in the Australian Navy's history, that, that, that uh, Cyclone Tracy operation. Now that is using the military for the public good, right? Look at what we're seeing in response to this. It took them 10 days to declare a state of emergency in, in the floods up here. The ADF has been severely criticised and a lot of it's not their own fault. They can only do what they're deployed to do. But the criticism includes some stuff that, frankly, Australians don't understand. They decided it was not safe enough for them to rescue people from their houses at the height of the, of the, of the storm and the flood. And so every day, ordinary citizens were doing it. And I can, I can assure you, many ADF personnel, who saw, they know they could go to war and get shot at. They would not have been the people to say, why can't we... Uh, we, don't, we think it's too unsafe to rescue people. Hmm. That's what they're there for, right? People just don't understand that, and that, that's understandable. But that's whatever decision, wherever, however that decision was made, the bigger decision is who decides when and how to use these people. We know, we'll talk about Peter Dutton in a minute, but just to give you some numbers, there's 60,000 active duty ADF personnel in Australia, 30,000 reserves. Right now, there's 2,200 of them in the flood area, 
and they plan to scale it up to 6,000, right? Out of 60,000. Hmm. Give me a break. You know, this, these people need masses of support for massive cleanup, etc. That's what this um, uh, institution is perfectly uh, capable of doing, right, when it matters. And um, no one wants to deploy them. And the minister who's responsible, the defence minister, this captured everything. We, it's a subhead in our press release, go fund yourself, because Peter Dutton presides over a $44 billion budget, yet when, cause, because Brisbane was flooded as well and his, his uh, electorate is Pine Rivers, he put, he's set up a GoFundMe page for flood reconstruction in Pine Rivers. And as of now, it's raised $27,000. Yeah. Right? You know, and, and that's ridiculous enough, but it's symbolic of the whole thing. People in Lismore were funding their own helicopter rescues. Right? Yeah. That's, what, that's what this country has... T- this is a government yeah. that's incapable of responding to the needs of the people. No, I found it, Robbie, that cartoon that you showed us the other day, which we should put up on yeah. the screen, because, look, that says it all. This government is trying to change the, the narrative to be the car key election, you know, strong on self-defence and defence. And We're so going forth. to war, boys. We're going to war, all that sort of stuff. And then you get this sort of catastrophe happening and screwing up the entire thing. But the response is the same. Yeah. It's the stupid idea. Go, you know, people should... And I think it's only raised $27,000. Yeah. And we need me, millions yeah. upon millions of dollars to solve the problems here. You know, there's, there's all sorts of interesting anomalies that get thrown up by these events. Like, for example, you've got thousands of people now that are homeless long-term homeless in Lim- mm. Lismore. They can't live in these houses. There's, there's a backlog of insurance assessments. You know, where are the materials going to come from to rebuild these homes? Where's the labour going to come from, the qualified builders to do this sort of stuff? So this is a long-term problem. It's now that this has happened, uh, the government's you know, committed $550 million now to, what, bring in portable housing. So they're starting to move motorhomes up into Lismore area for people to live in. But there's not that many mobile homes... No. that are available. I mean, here in Victoria, you know, the government's actually. built this new, uh, co- new complex at uh, Mickleham, which can also double up as a emergency housing for this particular region, mm. but the people of Lismore can't live in Mickleham here in Victoria. So there's a question, and there was a call for the local, from the locals up there, uh, local housing uh, uh, voluntary people, for what's called a housing bank, where you actually have you know, banks of the portable homes that you can move into areas that are required for oh, the yeah. purposes of housing people in an emergent situation. We could do that. Sure. You could have a whole industry, Robbie, building portable homes to be moved into areas where they're necessary to house people so they're not dislocated from their community. Interesting idea. But see, that's the example of, of, of the sorts of solutions. Now, that wasn't come up by government. Morrison government didn't come up with that. That was come up by the locals. Yeah, right. right and this is the sort of thinking that comes up. When, you, when you're talking to people at a local level, they have a better sense of what they oh, need absolutely. than a centralised government, in, you know, in this case, you know, talking about some government department in Sydney or whatever. Well, this raises a good point because um, you're right. And, and so sometimes people might think, well, that undermines your argument that you need a strong government. No, no. What you need is a system where local knowledge is respected and utilised but the, the resources, the strength comes from the national resources, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the national government can marshal the resources from the whole country to provide where it's needed. But you also need to make sure that, that the local knowledge is being utilised. Um, so let's talk now, Craig, about what we would do, what we would propose, or, or when, we, when we make these criticisms, 
what that's premised on because we know that one of the most important things that any government can have is a source of funding because that's what it often comes down to. And you will see, if you haven't seen it already, you will see Morrison, you'll see Frydenberg, etc., making excuses around this couched in the language of the budget, right? And so the people of Lismore and the Northern Rivers are going to be held captive to whatever budget fantasies they've got, just like it took them so long to get their act together on JobKeeper back in, in um, 2020. So what does the Citizens Party propose? Well, this is what a national bank is for, right? Because yeah. a national bank, that's why we have a policy for a national bank, a national infrastructure bank, a national development bank, and a, and a post office bank. Because what it does is it gives the government access to the power of credit creation. Right now, credit gets pumped into Australia every day by the private banks, mm -hmm. Craig. Mm -hmm. It's something like $50 billion a month, I kid you not, is pumped into Australia by the private banks as new loans. And that's created credit. That is money that doesn't exist in people's um, bank accounts. That is based on the credit creating power of banking. That's how banking works. And then people take those loans. Now, what do they do with those loans when the, when the money's coming from the private bank? They buy houses in Sydney and Melbourne. That's what they're doing with those loans. So what we're saying is what a national bank does is it adds to the amount of credit going into the community, but it's via the government and it's earmarked for productive things. Mm, right? Definitely. This should not be a monopoly in the hands of the private sector. That's for their speculation, for their profit motive. The government has the power, must have the power to use it for this kind of purpose because you, can, you don't have to look at what's in the budget. You've got a bank. You create the credit for what's needed because what you, what, in a case like this, you are reconstructing an area that's going to make it productive again. That's why you do it. So that, that's our um, policy. We also have, uh, related to this, we did an article last year Government has, in, in our alert service, government has important role in insurance. And I think this will be music to many people's ears because the insurance problems at a time like this are enormous. Well, in cases, most yep. people haven't got it because they can't afford it. No, exactly. And why can't they afford it? Because the private insurance companies say, oh, well, we, that's just too risky for us. It's uninsurable. Yeah. Well, Queensland in the 1920s set up what was known as the State Government Insurance Office. And it was an insurance company that worked brilliantly because what it is, is if you have insurance and everyone pays in, you create a bigger and bigger pool of money. But if the government does it, has an insurance company, it's not taking chunk, a chunk of that money out for an annual profit. That money stays in there and you're only paying out for disasters. And there's never a disaster everywhere at once, right? And so even when you have a big one, you have capacity to insure. And what happened when they privatised this, like all private insurance, they have to keep their profit, right? They, they, their, their shareholders demand a, a even, you know, you, got, you cannot drop profits. So it becomes harder. What do they, what the insurance companies do? They stop insuring whole sections of the community. And is, yeah, that exactly happened in, in Roma in Queensland. Yeah, tell that story. Because look, back in 2012, there were some very bad floods up at Roma. And, you know, a lot of the insurance companies said, well, we can't insure you anymore because there's too much risk. So what the people of Roma did in the local council, they said, well, let's build some levy banks and mitigate the, the, the risk. So they spent a mere $8.3 million, Robbie, on building a levy system to mitigate. It was on three, three different stages. And that actually then uh, protected 550 houses in the town of Roma. 
and about another 35,000 land portions around the area from just doing that. And of course, the insurance companies came back in after that and said, oh, our risk <laughs> is gone now, we can then uh, insure you. And where they did offer insurance, the premiums dropped by 45% because they then saw that the risk was gone. But there's an example, right, of, yep. again, human ingenuity going so that we can solve this problem by building these levy banks here and this drainage channels and so forth to mitigate the risk. Now, you have to ask the question, why wasn't that done in Lismore? Or what could have been done in Lismore? This is the town that you were telling us this morning. Out of the last 100 years, they've had floods in 90 of those years or 90 floods in 100 years. I mean, so it boggles the mind is if that's the case, where is the government action in order to mitigate the risk, even if it's a serious flood? And then you've got to ask the question, why are people building on floodplains? Yeah. Right? Okay, it's a one in a hundred year flood, which they can't get insurance for in their houses because the insurance companies know they're building on a floodplain. They say, no, no, the risk is too high, we can't insure you. So people go and build pretty new houses on these floodplains and all of a sudden you get these massive floods. People have lost everything. But where's the responsibility lie? It does come back to the responsibility of government to say, no, you can't build here because this will go underwater. It may not have gone underwater for the last 30, 40 years, but it will go underwater. And this, this is what's happened at this particular time. So how do you deal with that situation? Do you just blame the people and you say you've got to walk away and lose everything? No, there has to be, we believe there has to be a compensation scheme and that could be done through paying out the capital improved value of properties through a system of national banking and so forth. Yep. And, and look, it was done under the Grantham floods uh, in, in 2000, I think it was 2010, I think the Grantham floods up in, yep. I think they relocated 100 different, uh, 100 houses there. The council bought them out and they relocated people because it can be done by government. But this is, you know, private interests aren't going to step in and do this, and this is a role for government. This is a role for the general welfare. You can't build on a floodplain. I'm sorry, but it might look good. It might be a nice place. It might be picturesque and all of that. You build here, but you're going to go into it. And it doesn't have to just be negative, Craig. You get what, what you need, this is where Morrison's excuse overnight that, I, you know, this is state responsibility. That's, that's what's in the papers today. This is where he's always trying to pass responsibility. No, no, this is such a big area. You need, a, you need to oversee the whole lot of it. And you say, what's the solution for everything, right? And if that means that, you know, part of the solution requires moving part of Lismore as well as flood mitigation infrastructure for Lismore, there is a, the propose, there is a local proposal for a dam above the town that's never been built, right, that, 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 that's always been shelved, that would have that mitigating effect, hold back some of the water, give them more time. Um, We'll do more on this next week because we're doing some research. There's a local community group that's speaking out about how before 2010, even though they were living in a city that's prone to flooding, they had better systems for warning, for evacuation, all that sort of thing. And then that got centralised to Sydney and, and they've lost that capacity, right? All these sort of things need to be looked at. So when you look at the whole picture, you look at the systems, you look at the infrastructure, you look at the reconstruction, etc. You need the commitment of the national and state governments to do this, and the local governments, and how do you provide the resources, and that's where the bank comes in, right? Yeah. So what we propose, you know, our bank would be available for precisely this purpose. This would be when it shines. But get this, it doesn't have to be, we don't have to wait for the Citizens Party to get elected <laughs> and pass a bill to set up this bank. Because Australia already has a national bank, we just don't use it as a national bank. It's called the Reserve Bank of Australia, it was made independent in the 1990s, so no politician thinks they can do anything to it, tell it what to do, but they can. In the legislation, 
of the Reserve Bank of Australia. The preamble says it must make decisions for the benefit of all Australians, right? And that's, a, that's an overarching statement that justifies this kind of directive. And second, in the legislation, it says that the government can give directions to the Reserve Bank. And if the board of the Reserve Bank disagree with those directions, the will of the government prevails, right? And so the contrast, Craig, is to what Josh Frydenberg and the banks did and the Reserve Bank did to save the banks, the private banks in 2020 when the pandemic hit. The Reserve Bank invented, conjured up $200 billion like that as quantitative easing to inject into the private banks. That's what they did in 2020. That's the capacity, right? They have that capacity and the government could say to them, look, we need you to function as our bank and issue that kind of credit to us for this kind of reconstruction and they can do it today. So if you're hearing this debate unfold in the, in the coming weeks and months and you're hearing politicians say there's no resources for that, no, it isn't true. And I want to end on this little fact that came out of um, some of the research we've already done, Craig, uh, which is a contrast between this area of New South Wales, which is prone to flooding. We know that, right? Um, the Northern Rivers, and I got to drive through there just after Christmas, and I, for the first time I saw how big these rivers are. My eyes were really wide, right? This is a, a flood-prone area. Well, there's, another flood, there's plenty of other flood-prone areas in the world, and one of those is the Netherlands, mm. right? If the Netherlands doesn't have good infrastructure, it doesn't exist as a country. Half of it's under the sea level, right? In the, here's, the, here's the contrast. There's a ratio. In the Netherlands... 97% of what it spends on flood-related spending is mitigation. Yeah. It's infrastructure. Yeah. 3% is clean-up. Mm -hmm. In the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, 10% of what's spent on flood-related spending is mitigation. 90% is clean-up. Robbie, there's another example, a very important one, called the Tennessee Valley Authority in the United States. This was established by Roosevelt again in the, after the Depression or during the Depression in order to exact to deal with this flood mitigation issue around uh, the, the towns of Chattanooga, Chattanooga in Tennessee and so forth. I mean, what you're talking about here, there was approximately 4.5 million acres of land that was regularly being flooded and unusable. Yep. Uh, and only 1.5 million acres of that land was, was actually able to be farmed. So what... Roosevelt did says we have to fix this flood problem. So it took a national approach. It funded it through the Rural Finance Corporation, Reconstruction Finance Corporation, yeah. which was acting like a national bank. Mm -hmm. So all the predicates for this sort of problem solving exist, but it's not done through private channels. No. So therefore you have to have a revolution in the thinking by government of how this is done through the idea of putting the general welfare first. The, the, and this, in this particular case, I mean, you're talking enormous project. That even our own, you know, Lance Endersby, for example, went over and studied the, the it Tennessee controlled Valley. flooding. It brought electrification to the poorest areas of, of um, uh, the United States. It controlled diseases, mosquito-borne diseases. You're right. It inspired the Snow Mountain Scheme. Yes. It also inspired, at the time, in the 30s, there was another country that looked at this Tennessee Valley Authority and said, we want that here, and that was China. Yes. And eventually they got it there, and that's called the Three Gorges Dam, the biggest dam and power station in the planet there, 
and partly what it does is flood control as well. Well, TVA covers the same size as the state of Victoria, right? So you've got to look at this from a national approach, and you know, and the, the problem we do have in Australia is you have the state versus federal government, yeah. state versus state uh, rivalry when it comes to large projects. But I mean, the biggest at the you pointed out the other day, if the money's there to fund it. Yep. No state's going to turn it down. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the states and feds are always fighting over who's going to pay for it. If the feds ever said, hey, we've got a bank, we'll pay for it, no state government's ever going to There'll be lots of photo that. ops between yeah, yeah, yeah. opposites. They'll all be good friends. Yeah. All right. Um, we will follow this through because I don't think people are, maybe, well, maybe they do, but it's, it's easy not to appreciate how big a deal these floods are. And, and um, you can have all sorts of theories about them, but you've got to, you know, get in there and actually have solutions and we're going to follow that through and give people a sense of, you know, what means are available to government that this particular government um, has no intention of following. But we have to change the system in Australia if we're going to survive. All right, Craig, um, let's do this briefly, uh, but I do want to do it. No, we, don't want to, we don't want to ditch this uh, because AAP uh, fact-checked us this week. So we're going to talk about that. Bail-in fact-check fails to reassure depositors, but... Um, the main thing is, we'll write an article, we'll actually do, we'll do a release on this and you'll be able to see it on our website, but I just want to go through the, the highlights of um, what AAP did and I'll need to put my glasses on for this. Uh, um, all right, so on the 7th of March, this, is what, this was the headline, claim that government can grab bank deposits in a crisis has no currency. I thought that was a clever headline. Mm. So the claim was this, this is the quote, the government can take any deposits in excess of $250,000 from your bank account and instead you can receive shares in the bank. That was what was claimed and AAP said, our verdict, false. The claim is based on opinions that have been investigated by a parliamentary committee and found to be unsupported. And then they make the point that they are responding to a social media influencer in the Gold Coast who, um, I can't even pronounce his name, Espen Hyombi. Uh, had made a video about this on February 24, and he told his followers, Google bail-in law 2018 Australia. Um, and AAP acknowledges that when they did that, they came across the Australian Citizens Party because we are the ones, and our regular viewers would know this, that, that um, uh, led the campaign on this. Then they quote Helmby saying this, um, quote, they snuck in a new law, snuck it in the back door with some of the people voting it in, awake and voting it in, the rest were asleep. A law that says the government has a legal right to drain your bank account of anything above $250,000, um, end quote. And then they say that mirrors us. Now, then what they did is they took a, a literal reading of Helmby's statement because I don't think even Helmby was saying that, that the politicians were asleep and this was done in the middle of the night because it wasn't true. No. I was there. I've, I've told this story on this show many times. I was there when it happened, but there was only eight senators present in the chamber and it didn't go to what's called a division where they ring the bells. And the reason it didn't go is because... No one said no. No one said no. And that was deliberate because outside the chamber, One Nation had already told the government they intended to put up an amendment to this bill and the government knew that and they didn't want that amendment moved, right? And so by not ringing the bells, One Nation didn't know the vote happened. Hmm. And when no one said no it passed what's called on the voices. And that's how this, this uh, 2018 law passed. Um, and then that led to us in 2020, working with One Nation, Senator Malcolm Roberts, to put up the, same, the amendment he intended to, to, they intended to move then as a bill. And that bill led to an inquiry, which is what this fact check references. And um, 
the inquiry uh, basically said, no, 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 the concern about bail-in is wrong, right? And this doesn't need to be passed. It went to a vote um, and the, the, uh, the, the amendment didn't pass. But we said, well, uh, you had a chance here to clarify the law, right, so that people could be reassured and you have missed that chance. And so it's 18 months later now that AAP is raising this and you've got to ask why um, because a lot of, there's actually, we, we've even been raising it more recently before, maybe for the same reason as AAP. There is real reasons to be concerned about the stability of the financial system, the banks, and when, you, and when that concern comes up, the concern about bail-in also comes up. So what we're saying, Robbie, is that the amendment that Malcolm Roberts was going to put up was simply to clarify the bill and make it absolutely clear that what the government was saying was going to be the case, that, that deposits cannot be bailed in. And we're saying, OK, great, well, let's just clarify that and have it crystal yep. clear. Remove all the, doubt. Remove all doubt and just and they said, oh, we're not going to do that. No. Now you've got to say, well, why wouldn't they want to do that? So what I did, I'll just go through this quickly. I put out a tweet in, re in response, a tweet thread it's called, um, in response to AAP um, uh, and, and this fact check. Now, apart from AAP responded, taking the word of the government, hmm. they also interviewed three legal professors. And frankly, most of those legal professors were not addressing the main point. But I'll start with my last part of the tweet first because this is my first criticism. AAP chose to fact check this social media influencers' statements. Yet they know that we did the work on this. They didn't fact-check our statements, we're saying, yeah. right? Because we didn't put it the way the social media influencer put it. We were very careful on how we put this question. They knew we were the source. Why didn't they come to us, right? Because, first of all, well, I, I, I would have I given them the context of why this concern happened. So let's just go through it quickly in the time we've got. First, um, Australia is committed to a global policy adjudicated by the Financial Stability Board in Switzerland, at the Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland, we have signed up to it, called the Key Attributes of Effective Resolution Regimes, and that includes bail-in, and explicitly includes bail-in for deposits. That is undeniable. That's there in black and white at the Financial Stability Board. That's why a whole bunch of countries have legislation for this, right? The United States, the United um, Kingdom, the European Union, Canada, Japan, New Zealand has, legis has, has powers for this. And back in 2013, Robbie, we discovered in the FSB's own documentations that there was, quote, legislation in train, train. in Australia. Yes. And that set off the alarm bells for us. That's when we began mobilising full time and have been ever since. And it wasn't until 2014, uh, 2018, 17. 17, that that legislation in train yeah. actually popped up. Now, we were looking for it everywhere. And it was only until that... that That's right. Then, this legislation materialised in 2017 that said that it's explicit about bail-in powers for the regulator, APRA. And that's another thing. We've never said the government would do this. It's the regulator. Um, and it said these bail-in powers, conversion or write-off provisions, you either convert deposits into shares or you write them off, right, apply to these types of hybrid securities or any other instruments. That's what the legislation says. And we said, whoa, we know bail-in around the world applies to, to deposits. You're passing this, you're making this about hybrid securities, but then you've added those words. What are those words for, right? And that's where our alarm came from, because you're right. For four years, we've been on the lookout for this legislation that the Financial Stability Board had been told by the Australian government was in train, yeah. right? So 
The second point we made to in the tweet, the financial claim scheme $250,000 deposit guarantee does not apply to this at all. We, we've, never, we've never said that um, this is even related. It's the politicians that have always said it's related. Oh, don't worry, you're covered by that. Why doesn't it apply? Because one, it is unfunded. There's only a $20 billion provision, and that's not even enough. earmarked yet. It's just a provision, and that is not enough to, to cover the deposits in Australia, or even the deposits in any of the big four banks. It is unactivated because the financial claim scheme is only activated after a bank fails. And bail-in is not for after a bank fails, it's for before a bank fails to stop it from failing, mm. right? And so, sorry, that is not a reassurance. So we made that point. Third, we quote one of the legal experts um, who is, uh, that, that AAP required, uh, relied on, U University of New South Wales CNT Professor Ross Philip Buckley from the Faculty of Law and Justice, and he said, an extreme and strained reading of a phrase in the legislation could lead to that result, but it is not a reading any Australian court would adopt. Well, Who says? Well, I, I wrote, a legal expert said the concern of deposit bailing is based on an extreme and strained reading of the 2018 law. This absolutely supports the Citizens Party's point that the broad wording of the law does not give absolute protection for deposits against bail-in in extreme 2008-style crisis. That's the point. Where we're looking, we put up an amendment to give absolute protection. The fact that an, that an extreme and strained reading is still possible, that's what we're trying to stop entirely, right? We want to make this foolproof, and that's what the government objected to. The fourth point I made is Citizens Party's campaign and Senator Roberts' amendment sought to amend the law, the law in abundance of caution to remove all doubt, ensuring the legislation states what the government claims Former opposition leader John Houston said passing the amendment was a no-brainer. We can put that, that tweet up um, uh, on, the, on the screen. And in fact, a member of the bank, a former director of the Banking Association, Craig, who was also a, um, a, a, an advisor to John Howard and, and Alexander Downer, he came out and participated in the inquiry and he said, no, the concern is right, the law is ambiguous. But then he said, but it should be clarified the other way because deposits should be able to be bailed in. <laughs> right, but but the most important point is he agreed with us. The law is ambiguous. That's all we were saying. The law is ambiguous, and you cannot allow that if you want if you want um, confidence in the financial system. Um, uh, anyway, and then as I said, the, uh, what, the I made the point. Why didn't they contact us? Um, and the other thing is, uh, when you do understand the bail-in issue and you know about it being used around the world, there are some places in Europe where it's been used repeatedly, mm. right, and it takes it away from being an academic, academic debate like in Australia. It's a real thing. And that's why we're trying to guard against it, yeah. right? Um, and, and it's been slow in Australia because we've stopped it, Robbie. In yeah, we're, Citizens Party. We've, been, <laughs> we've created merry hell it's on It's us they're trying to get around. <laughs> yeah, and the point is that you know, MPs don't know about this stuff. So you bring it to their attention. Oh, no, it's not possible. You know, they've got this, this bailing guarantee of $250,000 or there's no bailing. You're not going to steal deposits. That could never happen. It never happened. But... MPs, unfortunately, aren't the most informed people. So when they start to see this, the initial responses couldn't be true, but then you start to explain it a bit more deeper, then they start to realise, oh, are we going to be in the hot seat for this one? I tell you what, there's a bunch of them in there who do know it is true. Yeah, they know. They've started to wake things. up. But, Craig, we're, we're going to keep fighting on this. Uh, yes. We'll put out a release on this with more detail if you, for those who are, are concerned. We do need to get this amendment back into the parliament to, to try and still clarify this question.
but we're out of time. Yep. So thanks, Craig, for You're joining welcome. us. Thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.